We're going to read 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11, 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you give us your word. Thank you that you gift men to preach that word. Thank you, Father, that you tell us to set aside our own uh, privileges, our own rights, Father, to serve our brothers and to not cause others to stumble, Father, and not trouble their conscience. Pray, I pray that you would open your word to our hearts today through what Tom has to share. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, guys. One of the most counterintuitive and countercultural realities of, of uh, living as a child of God, certainly one of the world's greatest objections to real biblical Christianity is this. Your well-being demands your self-denial. The way that you lay hold of true well-being for yourself is not by seeking it. It's not by going after it. In fact, it's by taking your hands off of it and leaving your well-being in the hands of God alone in order that you might be useful to Him. The well-being, or to use the word that Paul uses here, the profit that you are commissioned by God to seek in your earthly life is that of your neighbor, not of yourself. You must set aside the pursuit of yours in order to pursue your neighbors. It cannot be both. It cannot be both. The teaching of Jesus in the Gospels and the teaching of his apostles in the, in the New Testament letters is perfectly consistent on this point. And it is, it is not only consistent, it is emphatic and it is repeated from every conceivable angle. Uh, our passage this morning actually makes no sense unless we recognize that this principle drives what we find in it. As you've no doubt realized if you've been with us for this series, Paul is still addressing here in chapter 10 a matter that he first raised in chapter 8, and that is whether a believer should or should not eat meat that has been offered up to idols. And that question was very much on the minds of the Corinthian saints because the entire public life of the city of Corinth revolved around pagan sacrificial feasts. 
As I, like I said earlier, they didn't have state fairs. They had pagan sacrificial feasts. Paul is also still setting the stage in this chapter for what he's going to say in chapter 11 regarding a very different kind of meal. And that is the sacred remembrance that Jesus gave to his church that we know as the Lord's table. We just participated in, in that beautiful remembrance earlier this morning. As we've seen repeatedly, the real issue that Paul is addressing goes way beyond the matter of food offered up to idols. And that's good because it would have very little relevance to you and me if that was all that it was about, right? The real issue is the idolatrous way of life that characterized daily life in Corinth and that had taken a foothold in the lives of many of the Corinthian saints. In chapter 10, verses 14 to 22 that we saw last time, Paul urgently commanded the Corinthian believers to flee from everything associated with the idolatrous practices for which God had judged the Israelites roughly 1,400 years earlier. Those practices in included gluttony, drunkenness, partying without restraint, sexual immorality, as well as a couple of less visible but no less destructive sins, testing God, which means questioning the faithfulness of God, and grumbling and complaining about their circumstance. The reason that Paul sets before us in chapter 10 to flee from such behaviors is not because man-made idols are any real threat. Paul acknowledges in chapter 8, he acknowledges again here in chapter 10 that, that the idols that men create are just fakes. They're just an illusion. There is no threat inherent in those, those man-made images. The reason that God commands us to flee idolatry, that Paul sets before us in this passage, is because demons inhabit and empower all of those practices connected with idolatrous worship that I just listed. Demons employ those practices as very enticing snares to cripple believers and to maintain their death grip on unbelievers. We would do very well to pay attention to that list of behaviors that we saw last week and to consider that, that reality that demons are all about uh, using those kinds of practices to entice Christians away from Christ, from devotion to Christ, and to, to keep unbelievers in the darkness. Now, I'm convinced that rather than moving on to, uh, in this last part of chapter 10, to some other topic, moving away from that forceful warning about demons, Paul actually zeroes in, in this morning's passage, on one of the ways that we as the children of God do the most decisive damage to the enticements of Satan and his demonic foot soldiers. I want to start with the overriding principle or rule of life that Paul presents in the passage. And then we'll look at the practice that he commanded of the Corinthian saints and consider how that relates to, to practice in our cultural context today. First, the principle. The principle in 
the top level is that profitable overrides lawful. Profitable overrides lawful. In verse 23, Paul sets up a critically important contrast between two standards for determining what we are to do and not to do. The first standard is, is it lawful? The second standard is, is it profitable? Best way I know to explain the meaning of the word lawful, as Paul uses it here, would be that it is something not expressly or explicitly forbidden by God. There are a whole lot of behaviors that fall into that that territory. We who trust in Jesus Christ have been released from obligation to keep the letter of the law that was given through Moses. Keeping all the details of that law actually could never make anybody righteous. It was never intended to make anybody righteous. Instead, God intended that the law, which revealed His character and His ways, would prove to Israel and to all humanity that we are not righteous. We are not capable of being like God, of being acceptable to God. And that therefore, we all desperately need Christ's atoning death in our place to to make us right with God. As Paul put it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, the law has become our tutor, our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ that we may be justified. And the word justified means declared righteous in the eyes of a perfectly holy God. By faith. Justified by faith. For all of us who believe in Jesus, the law which formerly condemned us now has no power at all to condemn us. There is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and of death. We have far-reaching freedom in Christ. Anything that God has made or anything that man has made as image bearers of God that is not explicitly forbidden to us under the new covenant is ours to enjoy with two indispensable caveats or limitations. Paul presents both of them in this passage, but the same two were found in many other passages in the New Testament in in one form or another, starting in the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels. The first limitation on Christian freedom that Paul sets before us here is found in verses 23 and 24. Every behavior that God's Word does not explicitly forbid must nonetheless pass this critical test. It must serve the well-being of my neighbor and not of me. Both parts of that are important. It must serve the well-being of my neighbor and not of me. Paul says, verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own well-being, but that of his neighbor. The second limitation on Christian freedom that Paul sets before us in this passage is in verse 31. He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Every behavior that God's Word does not explicitly forbid must pass two tests. It must serve the well-being of our neighbor and it must glorify God. 
If you reverse the order of those two rules of life and you, you go to the love that drives them, they should sound very, very familiar to any, anyone who knows anything about the teaching of Jesus. In, in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, Jesus said there are two great commandments on which the entire law of God depend. In other words, if a person keeps these two commandments, he will fulfill the spirit of the law even though he is not working or attempting to fulfill the letter of the law. The, all the individual commands and ordinances and statutes that are found in the, in the Old Testament law. Here in the words of Jesus are those two all-encompassing commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. I heard Steve speaking it over there. That's, that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Shema, hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And Paul, and uh, the New Testament adds, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul presents those same two rules of life that tell us whether we should or should not do a thing. First thing that we have to ask is, does that thing proceed from love for God? And secondly, does it proceed from love for our neighbor? If it does, then it's profitable and it's good for us to do. If it doesn't, then it's not profitable and it's not good for us to do. Now, the word neighbor in the New Testament can refer to our fellow believers. It can be neighbor within the community of God's <laughs> people. But in many passages, it kind of has the same meaning that we usually assign to the word neighbor when we're talking about our neighbors. And that's how Paul uses it here, to apply it both to unbelievers and to believers. We know that because Paul tells us so right in the passage. In verse 27, he applies the test of edification, of building up to a scenario in which a believer has been invited to have dinner with an unbeliever. And then in verse 32, he says, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks, means Gentiles, or to the church of God. Now that, that covers both categories of unbelievers, Jews and Gentiles, and, and the household of God in which there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. So Paul's saying, give no offense to any human being. We'll talk about the offense part in a bit. In verse 33, Paul Paul finishes the passage where he started the passage, and that is with this matter of profitability. He says in verse 33, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. Paul could not be clearer in this passage about what, define, what God defines as profitable. That which is profitable is that which builds up other people and glorifies God. And by builds up, he means moves them toward Christ. Moves them toward Christ. The building up that we seek in the lives of our unbelieving neighbors is right there at the end of verse 33, that they may be saved. Paul couldn't be any clearer about the fact that that profitability only happens when we do not seek to build up ourselves. 
when we set that completely aside. Again, verse 24, he says, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Is that unclear? He doesn't say, seek your own good as a secondary pursuit after the other person's good. He doesn't say that. He says, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. In verse 33, he says, just as I, Paul, also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many that they may be saved. It's not a lot of one and a little less of the other. It's one and none of the other. We have trouble with that. Not seeking our own good, wouldn't you say that runs a little contrary to the way we're wired? That's why I say it's counterintuitive, it's countercultural, and it is fundamental to the Christian life. It's bedrock to the Christian life. Jesus said, whoever wishes to be my disciple must do what? Where did he start with? Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The setting aside that is commanded here is as fundamental to our assignment as the pursuing that is commanded here. The principle, the rule of life that Paul commands of every believer is deny yourself, which means abandon the pursuit of your own well-being. And we'll talk in a minute about the fact that that doesn't mean you don't care about your own well-being. It means you, you, have, you take your hands off of pursuing your own well-being. So deny yourself. Secondly, build up your neighbor and then glorify God. Those things are all part of one, one real reality, one way of life. They're not, it's not like do this and then some of this and some of this. They, they all go together. That is real and eternal profit. Okay, there's the principle in this passage. What's, what about the practice? What does it look like in the day-to-day -day when we live out that principle? Well, when you and I talk about applying biblical principles within the church of, uh, of Jesus Christ, we have a strong tendency to shift into the realm of rules. We think, okay, I get the principle. Now, what exactly am I supposed to do? What exactly am I not supposed to do? I have to point out here that Paul's most practical instruction to the churches in all of his letters is overwhelmingly principle-driven rather than rule-driven. For example, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, instead of giving us a list of words that Christians should not utter, <laughs> he says, there must be no filthiness and silly talk or crude joking which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. We read that and our old nature says, okay, well, give me some examples of filthiness, silly talk, Crude joking, so I can know if I'm violating that command or obeying it, right? Paul doesn't give us those examples. Even though he gets unusually specific in this passage at the end of chapter 10 about what we are to do and not do regarding meat sacrifice to idols, he is still focused on principle rather than rules, and I can prove it. After saying, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor, he gets specific. He says, eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. 
But if anyone should say to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. And then he says, I don't mean your conscience, I mean his conscience, the guy that informed you. What I find most illuminating about these instructions that are unusually specific for Paul is that they're still of no help to us at all unless we care more about the rule of love than we do about the love of rules. Our old nature with its love of rules demands that Paul tell us either don't eat meat sacrificed to idols or do eat meat sacrificed to idols. We don't like it when he says, well, it kind of depends. The big variable on which the answer depends, if we don't know, if we're not certain that the meat was sacrificed to idols, the big variable on which the thing depends is the, is the conscience of the people that are around us. Somebody else's conscience drives our behavior. Not very satisfying for a rule keeper. Paul bases the actual practice in each scenario that he mentions on doing that which serves the well-being of the other person and thus glorifies God. This passage is a whole lot less about when to eat meat or not eat meat sacrificed to idols than it is about giving up self and seeking the well-being of other people regardless of the limitation that that places on our freedom in Christ. In these specific scenarios that Paul uses to develop the principle, if one, if one of the Corinthian saints does not know that the meat bought at, that he bought at the market or that's being served to him at a neighbor's table was offered up to idols, Paul says there's no need for him to even raise the question. And there's some people who would find that just abominable. Either it's right or it's wrong. Ignorance is no excuse. See, if we don't come at this passage with the principle, the practice makes no sense. Why is there no need for him to raise the question? A statement that's presented in two different Psalms. For the earth is the, Lord, the Lord's and all it contains. That verse, that statement, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, reminds me very much of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5. He says, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified, it is set apart to God by means of the word of God and prayer. See, Paul's point here is that food is not inherently good or inherently bad. Beloved, God does not command his children to go through our days looking for a broken rule behind every bush. And there are some Christians who live that way. But that's not how Christians are supposed to live. In the last part of Colossians 2, Paul says that, that the approach to godliness that focuses on do not touch, do not handle, do not taste, looks like piety, it looks like godliness, but he says it's actually of zero value against fleshly indulgence. Instead of living like that, where our life is just a big list of do-nots and do's, we are to go about our days enjoying the things that God has given all men to enjoy, acknowledging that we have marvelous freedom in Christ to do so, but joyfully limiting that freedom out of love for God and love for other people. 
Love God and love your neighbor. And you'll notice the Bible is right in the middle of that centerpiece of glass up there. The Bible tells us that over and over and over. If we find it unsatisfying that, that we're told to live by that, then the problem is not with that. The problem is with us. See, it's not a burdensome assignment. It's a labor of love. Love for God and love for our neighbor. Paul tells the Corinthians if they do know that the meat that they or someone else bought at the market was offered up to idols, they must not eat that meat. To eat it would be to knowingly participate in a practice that Paul already declared to be the playground of demons in their efforts to ensnare men. Now, this is fascinating. It's only the playground of demons if you know that it was offered to idols. Because demons are all about messing with your conscience. They're all about messing with your mind in order to ensnare you, in order to lure you into other things that draw you away from the Lord. In the same spirit, if an unbelieving neighbor invites a believer to his table for dinner and someone at that table makes it known that the meat being served was offered up to idols, the believer must politely decline to eat the meat. Why? Well, first, because eating meat sacrificed to idols is forbidden. Second, if the person who pointed out that the meat was offered up to idols was concerned enough about that issue to speak of it, it's the believer's obligation not to tempt that other person to violate his, his conscience before God. Again, the details that Paul supplies here are only helpful to the extent that they smoke out the principle that actually tells us what we are to do and not to do. You and I are not going to run into situations where we have to decide whether or not to eat meat sacrificed to idol. You know, like I said, I have never picked up a piece of uh, a package of burnt hamburger meat that said Aphrodite's finest. <laughs> but we continually encounter we continually encounter situations in which the principles of this passage apply. God holds you and me accountable for a couple of things when we're in the company of others. First, do not tempt another person to violate his own conscience. If you're not sure what the other person believes about the behavior in question, if, if they would, would or would not have a problem with it in their, in their conscience before God, don't do it. And, and guys, don't make it your crusade to get that other person to be less restrictive about what he's comfortable doing or not doing. It is not our task to make other people, and especially within the body of Christ, to make our brothers and sisters embrace freedoms that are rightfully theirs in Christ. In Romans 14, which deals with the same essential matter and very definitely drills down on life within the body of Christ, Paul spends half of that chapter forcefully commanding Christians not to judge each other no matter which side of the practice they fall on. Whether they're doing or not doing the thing that falls into the realm of conscience rather than command. You don't get to judge how another person handles such a thing. And you don't get to make it your, your task to change them. That would eliminate a fair amount of Christian animosity within the body of Christ. It would certainly eliminate some conversations. 
If I hassle a fellow believer about what I perceive to be his hyperactive conscience, if I tell him he's too legalistic, he needs to enjoy what he has the freedom in Christ to enjoy, I will be offending him needlessly. I might think that it's very needful, but God says it's not. And I need to listen to God. You and I are lousy substitutes for the Holy Spirit. We should joyfully proclaim the freedom that we possess in Christ, but we must never demand that others practice that freedom just as we do. It doesn't matter if it's a Christian yoga class or trick-or-treating or Harry Potter or whatever, guys. Unless you can find the passage in the Bible that forbids it, you don't get to tell another Christian what to do with it. You decide in your conscience before God how you will handle it. And that's the end of it. That's the end of it. You don't get to bite and devour other Christians because they're not handling it the way you are. This is not unclear. This is crystal clear. And those examples, I hate to even mention them because like, that's like such a tip of the iceberg. Our lives are filled with things that, that, that Satan would love to use to divide us in the body of Christ over things to, to cause us to offend one another over things that just don't touch the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't touch that which makes us one. First, do not tempt another person to violate his own conscience. Secondly, do not offend another person needlessly. And that means over things that distract from Christ. In verses 32 and 33, Paul says, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many that, that they may be saved. We must never create offense over things that have nothing to do with the gospel of Christ or the Christ of the gospel. Whether we're talking about interactions with believers or unbelievers, if the other person is offended by something that you or I say or do, it should be because we look and sound too much like Jesus in their estimation, not because we don't. Jesus offended a lot of people when he was here. You don't have to read much of the Gospels to figure that out. There were people who wanted to kill him very early in his earthly ministry. Jesus, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You and I must do our very best to make sure that he's the only offense. The last thing I want to set before you is what Paul says in in chapter 11, verse 1, which is actually the end of this passage. You guys know the chapter divisions are not inspired, right? Okay. If you read the passage, you can't help recognizing that verse 1 of chapter 11 belongs in chapter 10. Okay. I'm going to read chapter 10, verse 32, through chapter 11, verse 1. It's just three verses. Listen to this. Give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also, I, Paul, also, please, all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. 
Does that give anybody heartburn? Paul is, is taking us to the big picture for all that he's just said. He already gave us the twofold goal of glorifying God, edifying our neighbor, and his exhortation in the last part of chapter 10 about how to do both of those things is all about setting our own liberty in Christ aside in order to serve both the people of God and the unbelievers that God puts in, our, in front of us. Now he makes it very clear that in doing so, we will be imitating him, Paul, as he imitated Christ. The last part is the part that matters most, of course, doing what Jesus did. And in, in Paul's letters, he makes it crystal clear that that's where he got this practice. Everything that he said here, he got it from Jesus. Listen to Romans 15, verses 1 through 3. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not please ourselves. By the way, if you have one of those Bibles that in italics has the word just in there, not just please ourselves, take your pen and scratch through the word just because it's not in the Greek. Okay. We are to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not please ourselves. Why? Let, us eat, let each of us, next verse, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. They don't stick the word just in that verse. Even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written in the words of Christ, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. In other words, all the animosity that this world had toward God fell upon Jesus. He did not please himself. Praise God that he didn't. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and did what? And gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Jesus did not please himself. He served his Father in order to buy our salvation. And this raises a serious challenge for every one of us. God intends for our lives, please hear me, brothers and sisters, God intends for our lives to be worthy of imitation because our lives are supposed to look like the life of Christ. In this era of Christian deconstruction, when so many young people are putting the inconsistencies of their Christian parents and Christian friends and of their Christian communities under a very unforgiving microscope, our tendency is to very conveniently say, well, don't look at us to determine the credibility and worthiness of Christ and Christianity. Just look at Christ. Is that what Paul says? No. It isn't. Christ, obviously, Christ is the only perfect standard. He's the only one who is perfectly worthy of imitation. But beloved, God says we're supposed to be worthy of imitation too as we follow Him. This has been, God's been rocking my socks with this over the last, especially this last week. Because I've used that excuse many times. Don't look at hypocritical Christians. We're all hypocrites. In fact, if you find a church that has no hypocrites in it, don't go in because you'll ruin it. It is absolutely true that Jesus 
will always be the only perfect example for people to, to imitate, but it is a cop-out for us to excuse a life that is too inconsistent to be worthy of imitation by saying, don't follow me, follow Jesus. You and I should be able to say to others, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And it shouldn't be like playing Where's Waldo for people to find things in our lives that actually reflect the character and ways of our Savior and Master. There's a current Christian song by Zach Williams called Less Like Me. The refrain goes like this. Oh Lord, help me be a little more like mercy, a little more like grace, a little more like kindness, goodness, love and faith, a little more like patience, a little more like peace, a little more like Jesus, a little less like me. <laughs> In the live version of that, he says, a lot less like me. I must decrease, Jesus must increase, including in me. I need to wrap this up. When, whenever other people might be affected by our choices about what we do or don't do, the question you and I must answer is not merely, has God forbidden me to do this thing? Even if the answer to that question is, no, God has not forbidden me to do this thing, if you're looking at that thing in a vacuum, all that does is get you into the ballpark. <laughs> we haven't been called to just get into the ballpark, guys. We have been called to step up to the plate and to hit grand slams that glorify God and that draw people to Christ. The question you and I must answer is not, how can I build up my neighbor without taking a hit to my own well-being? It's just, how can I build up my neighbor to the glory of God? The assumption will be that I will take a hit for doing so. But I won't lose anything. See, this does not mean that you and I are supposed to have no care for our well-being. It doesn't mean that at all. God is not uncaring, unloving. He's perfectly loving. He's the perfect father. You think he doesn't care about the well-being of his children? What this means is that we intentionally leave our well-being entirely in the hands of our perfect father, our Savior, our Master, the lover of our souls, we bank on the unbreakable promise of God that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Not, not tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, death, life, demons, things present, things to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what that means? It means it is well with your soul now and forever because of what Jesus did for you and because of nothing else. We have had lavished upon us, we who believe in Jesus, we have had lavished upon us the unfathomable riches of Christ for all eternity. The down payment of our inheritance is the indwelling Holy Spirit, God himself. God talks to us every day if we just sit down and listen to him and come to his word. We behold him. We see his beauty. We know why we're here. We know what our purpose is. We know what it takes to be joyful and peaceful and useful. We're not floundering around in the dark, guys. We live in astonishing light. We have no reason to create boundaries to protect ourselves from being harmed by other humans because we have God as our protector. 
We have no reason to seek advantage for ourselves of any kind because God has already lavished upon us a greater wealth than this world can even imagine. We have already been blessed, Ephesians 1.3, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Already, we have all the advantage we could ever need or ever want, and we have it in Christ alone. The blessedness of living in miraculous, God-created union with Jesus Christ frees us up to live as Paul did. I'm going to end with one more brief passage and then I'll pray. It's, we saw it just a while back, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19-22. to 22. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, I became as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men in order that by all means <laughs> I may save some. God's the one who saves. We're just the instruments. But that's the lifestyle that's useful to God. Loving Father, thank You for this passage. There is there's really so much that is valuable here. Pray, Father, that, that you'll, uh, you'll burn these things into our hearts, that you'll make us delighted to, to hand over our well-being to you every day because we already know it's well with our souls, Lord. And we know that the way to be very useful to you in the lives of the people around us is to do the things that build them up and that glorify you without regard to self. So make us like that, Father. Make us worthy of being imitated because we are imitating Christ. We ask it in His precious name. Amen.